time, and I just want to thank all of you for joining us this evening. Um, I'm looking very much forward to hearing from both of the Brunsons, who are generously available to us this evening. I, I think everyone knows the general background and doesn't need a lot of introduction, which I'm, and so I'm not going to give it. But uh, uh, Andrew, uh, Dr. Andrew Brunson, his wife Noreen, we'll both get a chance, or you all get a chance to see both of them this evening. But also, we will have a generous question and answer session as well. So that's coming up this evening. We also, I want to acknowledge, I know some of the students who are here this evening have an obligation for evening classes at a certain point. And students, you, when, you, when you need to leave, we understand and you'll just uh, slip out as needed. We certainly understand that and glad you can be here for uh, as much as you are. I want you to know that this evening's uh, pr uh, pre uh, presentation message but also all that follows with it is uh, done in cooperation between, obviously, the Biblical Studies Ministry and Philosophy Department of the college, but also is made possible by a generous gift and sponsored partly by the Geneva College Visiting Artist and Lecture Series, also known as GVALs. And I want to thank uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Cole, among others, for helping to make this evening a possibility. So thank you very much. I'd like to open in prayer, and then I'll just do a little bit more introduction, and then we'll get, uh, we'll get rolling. Father in heaven, thank you this evening for what is here and what is available, what is an opportunity not only to learn a little bit more about what it's like uh, being a believer and a follower of Jesus, uh, including in places that are uh, alternately uh, very open, very needy, or not so open. And may we be teachable and guidable, particularly, I pray, for people of any age that they would be open to follow what is important to your heart. Because we know that when, uh, what, when what's important in our minds it aligns with what is important in yours, that really truly is the best place to be. And may this evening be a good contribution uh, to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Andrew Brunson, Dr. Andrew Brunson, will tell a little bit about uh, himself as uh, he sees fit. Uh, I want to acknowledge something because I know the questions have already come up. We do have permission this evening uh, to record what is going on, so those will be available. Uh, we don't know exactly the outlet yet, but that will be available if needed. You may have seen uh, his book that has just been out a very short period of time, God's Hostage. We do not have copies here for sale. I know that probably some, and I was expecting there might be copies. There won't be, but you'll have no time uh, getting a hold of this through uh, any of of a number of other sources, and I think let me just go ahead and, sir, welcome up. Thank you very much. Okay. How many of you are students? Okay. Great. I wanted to especially speak to students at the beginning uh, because... There will be time for questions and answers, and Noreen and I will both uh, be available for that. And we, we like doing that, but what's really on my heart especially, Noreen and I spent 25 years in Turkey. 23 of them were uh, voluntarily. Two of them were involuntarily because those last two years were in prison, but 25 years total in Turkey. 
And uh, our focus, obviously, has been on the Muslim world. Turkey is, uh, is a Muslim country. It's, uh, most Turks have never met a Christian. It's actually the largest unevangelized country in the world. So that's where our focus has been for, <laughs> for many years. But since coming back to the States, there's, I have an urgency <laughs> on my heart, a burden on my heart, especially for your generation. When I say your generation, I mean you who are students. You're the age of uh, my children, most of you. My children are 18, 21, and 24. And there's such a different environment that you're, uh, that you're in now than I was in when I was your age. I think there's a lot more hostility toward uh, Christianity. And I am very concerned about your generation. I don't know that my generation is prepared necessarily, the rest of you, (laughs) my generation, is prepared to deal with persecution. But I'm pretty sure that your generation, the younger one, is not. Because we have the advantage, the older generation, of of at least some several more decades of seasoning. So I'm especially concerned. And I believe it's becoming increasingly difficult to stand for Jesus and for his truth. I had the opportunity to do this. Uh, I didn't intend to become an example. I think I've become, God raised my name with many believers because there were many people praying for us. And I'm, I'm grateful to all of you who prayed for me. That was something that God was doing supernaturally. Uh, he was starting a, an unprecedented prayer movement around the world. But through that, many people, as you were praying for me, you came to know my name. I didn't choose to become an example. But because of the circumstances, because of the situation I was in, I, I did become an example to many people of someone who endures in persecution. And so I'm especially... Uh, I want to encourage, especially the younger generation, because of what I think is coming, to stand for Jesus. And I want to take the first uh, part of our time to talk about this. I I believe that the political media and business classes, along with most of academia, are increasingly hostile to Christians. And there's always been an elitist fringe uh, who attack Christians. But this is now becoming mainstream. And whereas the demand used to be that Christians tolerate uh, things they disagree with. And I'm all for tolerating people and leaving them alone to lead their own lives however they want to. But the demand now is not for tolerance. It is for approval and actually for celebrating, that we must celebrate as Christians things that are actually incompatible with God's kingdom. And everyone seems to be broadcasting their own truth now. It's my truth and your truth. And actually speaking truth. If we want to speak truth, it's, it means to simply say about everything what God says about it, to say about myself what God says about me, to say about others what God says about them, and to say about God what he says about himself. And this is where you will be especially challenged, is in the area of, of truth, especially as it relates to holiness and to morality. So there's a spiritual battle going on uh, behind many of the issues of our day. Who is going to define truth? Who will define morality? Who will define identity? And God claims this right for himself. And for those who stand for Jesus, for everyone who wants to live a godly life, we're told that that there will be persecution. And what we see is that society will marginalize them, will look down on them, will try to silence them. And it may cost you, if you want to stand for Jesus... This is a a matter of loyalty to him. If you're loyal to him and stand for him, then it may cost you. 
There may be a loss of prestige, losing a job. It could be worse than that. And there's no way around it. Truth is offensive. Jesus, many people are offended at Jesus, even though he's perfect and beautiful and the most loving person who's ever existed. But people are offended at him, and there's clearly an attempt to silence his voice. And I want to add, it's not enough. People will not just say that you're wrong if they disagree. I disagree with you. They won't say that. They'll say that you're evil. Jesus said this would happen. This is what happened to me in Turkey. Uh, We spent years loving the Turkish people. And there was a uh, government-led propaganda campaign against me. They said I was a, a military spy that I was a CIA agent in charge of all of Turkey. Then it was in charge of the whole Middle East. Then they said I was going to be the director of the CIA. If only I had succeeded in in a, a coup attempt in 2016. They said that I wanted to cut the heads off of Turks, that I was wanted to dismember their country. They called me in the newspapers, in the, on the TV, sometimes splashed the whole front page of newspapers, not just a little corner on the front, but the whole page. Agent priest, dark priest, terrorist priest. My favorite was Rambo priest. <laughs> I would have been, I, I wish sometimes that they would, that they would, accuse me of what I'd really done. If they said, this man has planted churches, this man is declaring Jesus Christ here, then, and, and, and we're against this and we're going to imprison him for it, then at least I would have embraced that. I would have been proud of it. But they didn't say that. They said I was evil, a traitor, a hater of Turks. And this is what they will do. They'll call you evil. Are you ready to be called evil? I especially speak to you students. Are you ready to be called evil, to be despised, to be looked down on, to be marginalized? What will you do when the Twitter mob attacks you? Are you willing to pay the price? Who are the people who will stand, who will not bend in the storms, who will live without apology and without shame for Jesus Christ? The problem is that if we're not prepared for these things, then there's a good chance we'll get knocked out of our relationship with God. There's a a great sifting coming. I was talking just a couple days ago with someone who has organized some of the biggest conferences for uh, for college-age students over the last couple decades. And I I told him, this burden I have in my heart for your generation. And... uh, He said, yes, we believe there's a great sifting coming. There's going to be great pressure. But we're not really talking about this right now to students because we'd be speaking into a vacuum. It's not happening so they don't think it's relevant. I said, you've got to talk about it now because you want to prepare them before it happens so that your hearts are ready to stand. Jesus said that if we're... He he told us that problems would come. He told us persecution will come. We see it coming. And he told us that we need to be prepared Because if we're not prepared, there are four dangers, he said, that people would fall into. One of them is that many will be deceived. What they'll do is they will readily accept teaching and they'll look for teachers who will justify compromise because this will allow them to escape hardship. We already see this in the area of morality. How many churches do not hold biblical standards up because they don't want to offend The other is that many will react from fear. I am an expert on fear. I have been more afraid than 
Oh, probably anybody here in my life. I know what fear is. I had faced danger before in Turkey. The reason I was called Rambo Priest is because there was an attack by a gunman on our church, and I had to uh, uh, run over and give him a bear hug and hold him, try to hold him desperately until the police arrived because he had a shotgun and was going to shoot up our church. So over the years, we'd had a number of threats, a number of uh, dangerous situations in Turkey, situations with risk. So I had faced danger, but I was overwhelmed in prison because of the threat that I wouldn't be with my children again, that I would never be with my wife again, and that I would wither away and die in a Turkish prison in a terrible, terrible isolation. So fear is real. And we prepare ourselves so that when we are afraid, we react not from fear, but from the right perspective. Because if we react from fear, the instinct is to run away. And the reason the military, if you think about it, the reason the military is much more effective than a mob is because soldiers have been trained to stand even when they're afraid. To not run when you're persecuted. When you're flooded with fear, you have to have an anchor in place. You have to have something to cling to when the instinct is to give in. And I thank God that I didn't have a choice about going to prison. God didn't ask me, would you like to go to prison, Andrew? Uh, No. I got slammed in. It was sudden. We weren't expecting it. And we ate breakfast nicely on our porch in Turkey. And then we went to the police station to pick up our... uh, We thought we were going to get our... Residence permits, long-term residence permits. And instead they said, oh, we're going to, uh, there's an order to deport you and we're arresting you. So I walked out from breakfast that morning and it was two more years (laughs) before the Turks set me free. So it was very sudden. I thank God I didn't have a chance to run away because I would have run away just like Jonah did. Even if God said, Andrew, I want you to do this. Well, maybe, maybe I would have done it. I don't know, but it's a, I'm not sure that I would have done it. I would have done what Jonah did and run. And it took me a year, my first year in prison. It took me almost a year to reach a point where I was consistently willing to serve God through imprisonment. So in the end, I did become strong enough to stand before hostile judges, before hostile media, and declare the supremacy of Jesus. But it took me almost a year of fighting through to a point where I would surrender my will to God. There were many battles before I made it to that point. My point is, you have to plan ahead. You have to prepare your heart now for the battle that comes so that you don't run. Jesus also warned that when persecution comes, many, this may surprise you, but the warning is that many will fall into drunkenness and sexual immorality. By drunkenness at the time of Jesus, they didn't have all the drug stuff, but that's what he means. Why would people do that? Because it's a means of self-medication. It's a way of escaping. And the last is that many will be offended when persecution comes. And this is a big one. I was very offended at God. I thought he had abandoned me. I had, for years, I had run after the presence of God. And I read all these biographies that talked about, you know, very strong Christians who'd gone through uh, into difficult situations, and they were just very strong. And uh, they're, they're some of my heroes. And I found that I didn't measure up. <laughs> Because 
I broke in prison, the isolation. I was the only Christian in, in the prison they put me in at first. Cell for 80 people built, uh, sorry, cell built for eight people. There were over 20 of us crammed in. All of them were very strong Muslims. We never left the cell. We were there 24-7. And day and night, 24-7, there were Muslim prayers and the chanting of the Quran. And that environment, the spiritual environment, was so dark for me. And I was the only Christian. There wasn't anybody to encourage me, to pray with me, to correct me when I had wrong thoughts. And I was isolated. I was had no certainty about what was going to happen to me. I was uh, accused of being a terrorist, and I could be in Turkish prison for many years. And I lost hope. And that combination of desperation and uh, anxiety, uh, I became suicidal a number of times in prison. So I broke. And one of the main reasons I broke is because I didn't sense the presence of God. And I thought that I would have this sense of strength or of joy, of... Uh, of a feeling of his grace. And I definitely had grace, but I wasn't aware of it. It was an unfelt grace. And because of this, I became very offended at God. And it strangled my, my relationship with him. This is what... Now, that's not the end of the story. The other part of the story is that God rebuilt me, especially in my second year. He took me out of this brokenness and weakness and began to to rebuild my heart and my relationship with him. But this is what will happen. Many people, when hardship comes, they will become offended at God. Jesus warned that this will happen. They will become offended at what God allows. So many of them will be uh, offended because in the midst of difficulties, they'll think that God has abandoned them, and they'll be so disappointed that their heart will grow cold, and they'll turn away. So Jesus warned us ahead of time so that we won't be overwhelmed with fear, so that we're not afraid. When I say persecution is coming, I don't, I'm not intending to cast fear into your heart and discourage you and be a, you know, just come with doom and gloom. That's not the point. I'm here to, I'm not here to frighten you. I'm here to encourage you. Uh, Jesus warned us ahead of time so that we'll prepare so that we'll emphasize the right things and, and set a solid foundation. And we prepare now so that we can stand later. We have very good news. Jesus wins in the end. And everyone who's with him wins along with him. All of us who are on his side will win with him. So there are several things that help me to stand, to endure in prison. And I only want to take time to emphasize one of them, but it's the most important one. I want to go back a little to 2007. Uh, we had been already involved in church plants and ministering in Turkey for a number of years. But we went to a conference and in the States. And in that conference, we saw a number of people who were healed physically. And I just saw the Holy Spirit moving in, in, a, in a way that I hadn't for many years. And the the man leading the meeting said, you know, when you're at a conference like this, uh, sometimes, and if you're not familiar with these things, that's okay. I don't want to be offensive to anybody. Uh, we all believe in Holy Spirit. <laughs> so uh, he said, when you're at a conference like this, sometimes there are just waves of the Holy Spirit as we see God, God working. And that encourages us. It takes spiritual authority to start these waves. And I thought, you know, I'm going back to Turkey. 
It's the largest unevangelized country in the world. Most cities in Turkey don't have a single church. I would be glad to go to conference after conference where these waves of the Holy Spirit and, 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 and just participate in that and surf along those waves. But there aren't any people starting waves in Turkey. And I began to pray in a way that changed our ministry and it actually, I think, took me into prison years later. And I want to encourage you to pray the same prayer. <laughs> so this is what I prayed. And I prayed better than I knew because I wanted, I wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. I wanted gifts. I wanted anointing. But what I ended up praying was different from that. And that's why I say I prayed better than I knew. And I prayed, oh God, draw me so close to your heart that you will be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. Oh God, draw me so close to your heart. This is all, it was all about intimacy and about, about wanting to know God's heart. Draw me so close to your heart that you'll be able to trust me because I'll have your heart too. You'll be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. I want to be a wave starter. This is what I started to pray for. Take me close to your heart so that I can be a wave starter. The way we did it was very simple. Sometimes people ask me, how, can, how do you develop love for God? Because I really do love God. I say, well, the way I started was saying, God, I don't really love you, but I really want to. I'm not hungry for you. Make me hungry. I'm not thirsty for you. Make me thirsty. And I started to say this every day. Oh, God, make me hungry for you. I want to be passionate for you. And as I did this, he met me. He saw the cry of my heart. He actually put that cry in my heart, but he saw it and he met me. And so it started very small. We went back and we decided that one night a month, one night a month, we'd set aside two hours to just worship, to sing, to seek God's face. So it's a very small beginning. One, two hours every month is not very much. Uh, but, and we called it glory night because we just wanted to see God's glory and taste his glory. And then it became once a week. And then we started having extended times of worship for, for two or three days at a time and chains. Um, not chains, and uh, uh, what do you call that? Where you take turns <laughs> and fill up the whole 24 hours. And we just started to seek his face and seek his presence. And as, he, as we did this, he met with us. We began to have much more of a sense of, of, of him moving among us. And this led us, it set us up for something. That two years after we began to run after his presence and after his heart, uh, God, God spoke to me, and this hasn't happened very often, but he spoke to me and he said, prepare for harvest. When I heard this, it startled me. And then said it again, and it began to grow in my heart. And everything, so what we, our, our seeking his face had set us up to receive an assignment, and that assignment was to prepare for harvest. And we began to do that. Everything we did was we seek out, Lord, how do we prepare for a, a powerful move that's coming? And we pressed into this. We took a series of steps of obedience and we kept our focus on intimacy. A few weeks ago, I had an overwhelming sense of having been chosen for this prison assignment. In 2009, I said, I heard that, prepare for harvest. In 2016, when we were arrested, I thought, God, did I do something wrong? 
Did you cancel this assignment? I'm supposed to prepare for harvest. How can I do that in prison? And then as my imprisonment extended, I came to realize God was doing something as I was in a Turkish prison cell, broken and weak. He started a wave. (laughs) He started a worldwide wave. I wanted to be a wave starter. I didn't start the wave. God made a wave, but he used me as a magnet to pull prayer in. And millions of people around the world began to pray for me. It was an unprecedented prayer movement. A church historian told me this. An unprecedented prayer movement focused on one person. So what God did was he put me in Satan put me in prison. I don't blame God for that. Satan attacked us. But then God took what was intended to harm me, and he turned it around, and he brought so much good out of it so that I became this magnet for prayer. And millions of people who could not find Turkey on a map before now knew where Turkey was. And that prayer was coming in for me primarily, but I believe it was overflowing into Turkey. And this is going, in other words, I found out that my imprisonment was actually an assignment from God. It was part of my assignment. My assignment hadn't been cut off. Actually, my being in prison was helping to create the conditions for that great harvest that's coming in Turkey. So I believe that what happened is that prayer in 2007, draw me so close to your heart that you're able to entrust me with the authority to start waves, that that set me up. I pos- we positioned ourselves because we were seeking God's heart. We ended up positioning ourselves so that then he could say, I'm going to use you for this assignment. And I believe the reason he, he gave me that assignment was because of the obedience and the running after his heart. So God knew it's not because I'm a great guy or, or, or very strong or anything like that. I'm just saying I positioned myself and then he could use me. Because he knew that I would be broken. He knew that I would be weak and be pushed to the very edge. I almost didn't make it. But he also knew that because I'd been running after his heart, that in the end I would run after his heart again. And that's why he could trust me with this assignment. So in a sense, he trusted me even though I'm weak. And even my strongest love is pretty pitiful. And I feel so honored and privileged to have received this prison assignment because of what God did with it. So Jesus said, this is to set up what I really want to underline is, Jesus said the most important thing, the fundamental, foundational thing, and I just want to drive this home to you students. Oh, if you could grab a hold of this, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love him with all that you are. And I didn't make that up. That's what Jesus said is the most important thing you can do. And this starts, of course, with discovering and receiving God's love for us. But to love him, oh, if you would devote yourselves to loving God. If you would devote yourselves to running after his heart. If you do this, everything else will come into alignment in your life. I'm not saying it will be easy. But everything else in your life will come into the right alignment and you'll have the right perspective if you'll devote yourself to running after his heart. Loving God is about much more than feelings. 
It's devotion, it's obedience, and it's, it is a pursuit. And this love is what will make you willing to stand for Jesus, to pay the price, and to persevere. It seems so obvious, it's so simple, and yet somehow many of us still miss it. It, it doesn't happen automatically. Many start out with passion, but very few pursue God long-term throughout their lives. Some of my close friends are, are just not walking with God anymore. Some of them who are still, you know, walking with Him, they profess faith, but they, they don't have a passion for God. My point is that I had to pursue, and I keep sliding. That's our natural tendency. The natural tendency isn't to grow in love for God. The natural tendency is to decrease in love. It has to be nurtured. You must nurture it. So ask for this every day. If you're not hungry, ask God to make you hungry. And I have to continue to renew my pursuit. You know, there's some, actually something I miss about prison. And I don't want to be back in prison. There's, I don't want to go back. But there's something I miss because the conditions of my imprisonment, the isolation, the threats, the, the fears, they tested me. But they also pushed me. They drove me to cling to God as I never had before. And they also brought a, a rare clarity about what really matters. And every day in prison, my every day was consumed with seeking God, with drawing close to Him. And this was just a matter of spiritual survival. I just was clinging to Him desperately. And now I'm free and I love being free but I miss the complete dependency on God. I want to recapture that, that desperate seeking that I had then. My point is that we tend to slide away. We have to nurture. We have to keep that fire going. So since I'm urging you to prepare yourself to stand when persecution comes, let me make it very simple. A lover will endure much more than a servant. A lover is willing to suffer for his beloved. And God has many servants, but he has few lovers. So I feel this sense of urgency for you, for your generation, that you prepare to stand in difficult times. And this is so important. That's the most basic thing. We want to survive spiritually, keep our hearts right before God. But Jesus wants so much more than this. He wants so much more than spiritual survival. I want to end this with a, with a story from my prison time. After my 11 months in prison, I was dragged into, a, pulled into a court session, and they increased the charges against me, and these charges would bring an automatic three life sentences in prison. Three life one you think one life sentence is enough, right? They were going to give me three life sentences in solitary confinement. Let me tell you, solitary confinement is very, very hard. So solitary confinement, I had 55, 56 days of that, and it, it was very difficult. So solitary confinement with no parole. And so this was like a death sentence to me. And I had, I had, God had started to rebuild me. I was starting to go after him focused myself on him throughout the day. But, but this was like a death sentence, and it knocked me out. It knocked me down. But about two weeks after, after those three life sentences were 
placed over my head. I, was, I, I, I wrote a song. I didn't sit down to write a song. I was crying out just as my pain, my, my suffering, my grief, my fear to God. And then what came out of my mouth was, you are worthy. You're worthy of my all. You're worthy of my suffering. You're worthy of my pain. You're worthy of this, Jesus. And there's one verse that, that I wrote. This was my heart sunk to him. And a, it, this is what it says. I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day. That day when I stand before Jesus. I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day. With no regrets from suffering. Things left undone. And I sang this every day for the rest of my imprisonment. Because I became focused on the day I'll stand before him. And I thought a number of believers are going to stand before Jesus and you'll say, you have eternal life, you can come into heaven. But you wasted your life. I thought, what if Jesus says to me on the day I stand before him, Andrew, there were victories I intended for you to win, but you missed out of them because you were a coward. There was an inheritance I had planned for you. You pulled back. There was a reward, but you forfeited it. And I began to fight every day to bring myself to a point of submission. I'd get up in the morning with fear, anxiety, with grief, and I'd begin to fight through and I'd say, Oh God, I want to submit myself to you. If being in prison is your assignment for me, I can't embrace prison emotionally. But with my will, I say, I want to complete my assignment. Give me the strength. Give me the courage to persevere. And I'd fight through throughout the day, focusing myself on him, bring, trying to come to that point of surrender. And usually by the time night came, I would have reached that point. And then I'd experience the deepest level of peace that I could in prison. And then I'd wake up the next morning with the same fear, the same anxiety, the same grief. And I'd start the battle over again to reach that point of submitting my will because the previous day's victory didn't carry over into the next day. And I did this every day. And it brought me to that point where I there was a fear of God that took hold in my heart and I began to live for that day when I stand before Jesus. So my love for Jesus had been tested. It had grown. And this drove me, drove me to complete my assignment for him. If I love Jesus, then I'll be willing to stand for him even if it costs me. If I love Jesus, I'll obey him even if it costs me, because I love Jesus, I will pursue him. And even now when I wake up in the morning, I did it this morning, I try to start off my day by saying this, the only thing that matters is what my king, Jesus, will say about me on that day, what he will think about me on that day that I stand before him. There's nothing else. Nothing else can compare Nothing more important, to be faithful in my generation, to love him, to stand unashamed without apology for my king. This is what I must do. And someday you will also stand before your king, before Jesus. And I urge you, live for that day. Live for that day. Live in light of that day. 
to love him. And because you love him, to win victories for him. I want to win victories for him. When I say that, Noreen says, oh, no. (laughs) Because sometimes if we want to win victories, there's a price to pay. But it is so worth it. I can say we have no regrets. It was really hard. It was hard. But I have no regrets. So I want to pray for you. And actually, I don't know if you do this at your school, but I, I want to give an opportunity, especially, well, for anybody here, but to respond to this. Because as we take steps towards God, He takes a step toward us. So I call you to commit yourself to the first commandment, to commit yourself to a lifelong pursuit and devotion. So just close your eyes. I want to spend some time before God. Oh, Holy Spirit, I ask you to blow into this place. Holy Spirit, stir up in hearts even now that hunger Just the knowledge that there's more. However much we have, there's always more of you. There's more you want to give us. A deeper walk, a deeper love, deeper knowledge of you. Holy Spirit, release that hunger now into hearts. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something that may make you uncomfortable, but if you have a stirring in your heart, that hungering, I want more of you, God. I want to devote myself to loving you. I want to devote myself to a lifelong pursuit of your heart. Then I invite you to stand where you are, to do this before the Lord. And some of you also feel... A, a, a stirring in your heart, I believe, to be wave starters. It doesn't mean it will take you to prison. I don't know where it will take you. But some of you feel a desire, a stirring in your heart to win victories for God. And this is from God himself that he's putting in your heart because he wants to give assignments to you and he wants to release callings. So God, I ask right now that you release callings in this room. Whatever field these people go into, whether education or business or politics or whatever field it is, into missions, whatever it is, oh God, that they would win victories for you. So if you have that stirring in your heart, then stand before him and say, I want to receive a calling from you, God. And I'm willing to position myself so that you can use me. So I invite you to pray what I prayed in 2007, if you want to. Oh, God, draw me so close to your heart that you will be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. Oh, God, draw me so close to your heart that you'll be able to trust me with the authority to start waves for you. Oh, God, I pray that you will seal in hearts right now 
Seal that yearning for more of you. Start fires right now that will not go out, that will burn for the rest of their lives. Meet us with your presence. Let us taste your presence and your glory. Let us know your heart. I ask that you raise up warriors, men and women in this room, especially in the younger generation. Raise up warriors for you. Men and women who will win victories for you. Raise up also devoted lovers. May they stand unashamed before you, Jesus. May they stand unashamed for you in their generation. May they stand without apology in their generation. And may they be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets. I bless you in the name of my King, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is, a, this is what's really on my heart. I took most of my time, but I'm willing to answer questions as long as you want to ask them. So Noreen, you want to come up? So the question is my relationship with other prisoners. Uh, so I, in solitary confinement, I, obviously I didn't have that problem, right? It was just me in a bed. Uh, but when they put me into the uh, overcrowded prison cell, all of the people in that cell were very strong Muslims. They were all accused of being part of an Islamist movement. Uh, the leader is Fethullah Gulen. And uh, the Turkish government accused the Gulenists of being behind an attempted coup in 2016. So the government was rounding up tens of thousands of people, and all of the ones that I was placed with, they group us according to our alleged crime. So since I was accused of being part of an Islamist movement, yes, <laughs> it makes no sense, uh, then, then they put me in with, with uh, those kinds of, uh, the same kind of prisoner. Now, let me say, I was accused of many things, the Turkish government knew very well that these were false accusations. They knew that it was not true, but they were trying to find something they could make stick. Uh, this was not a judicial process where, uh, you know, a prosecutor accused me and I had to go through a normal court system and the Turkish government was hands-off saying, well, you know, we just need to let the normal judicial process run its, the normal, run its normal process, procedure. Uh, that wasn't the case. This was being driven by the top uh, political leaders were making decisions about me. The reason they arrested us was to deport us, to expel us from the country. But then uh, they kept me. We were together 13 days uh, in a cell. And then they released Noreen, and they kept me for another two years. Uh, the reason they kept me at the beginning, I think, was to make an example of me and to intimidate other missionaries uh, because up to that time no one had been imprisoned uh, no missionary had. And so this would uh, raise the cost, <laughs> uh, a factor that people would have to think of. You know, do I stay in Turkey if I have young children? Do I expose myself to this risk? So there were some people who 
who then left because of this. And the Turkish government wanted to encourage that. They also wanted to intimidate local Christians, uh, local uh, Turkish pastors, because the idea is if you can do this to an American, you can do this to anybody. Then after a while, the calculus changed, and they kept me to try to use me as a bargaining chip to leverage concessions from the U.S. But behind all the political intrigue, there was something else going on, uh, what many analysts in State Department or defense or whatever area they're in, what they often don't take into account is that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. Uh, you know, Paul said our battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. The idea is there are, there are uh, good forces, evil forces. There's God and his angels and, and prayer, and then there's Satan and demons, and uh, they affect things in the world. And Many people who are analyzing these things do not have any place in their worldview for spiritual influences, so they don't take them into account. So why did they keep me long-term? It doesn't make any sense. It was really damaging their relationship with the United States. But there, was a, a, a spiritual, there were spiritual powers driving this. And also, the other side is that I came to see that God is a grandmaster chess player, to put it in human terms. And so there were times when it was like a, a, a Pharaoh and Joseph story, where, or Pharaoh and, and Israel. So sometimes you see Pharaoh hardening his heart, and other times it says God hardens his heart. And, and uh, because God was going to demonstrate his power and glory through this hardening of the heart. And I think the same thing happened in Turkey, that there was a human side, uh, and for whatever motives, that they hardened their own heart a number of times and wouldn't release me. And then there were other times when God was involved in allowing this because he had something greater that he was going to accomplish through my remaining in prison for that time. So that doesn't have anything to do with your question. But <laughs> to go back to that, uh, so I was in with, with a number of Muslims that was a very intense, dark environment for me because I was only Christian. Uh, I did have a chance to witness to people. When I was in a detention center before, there were a number of refugees, and they began to let me out sometimes where I, to, to eat with them. And I was, I was under, I was really breaking. I was desperate. I was ha having panic attacks. I wasn't sleeping, so I was isolated and sleep-deprived, and, and I was just breaking down. But I still tried to pray for people and witness to them and uh, uh, try to maintain a witness to them, even though in my heart I was just, you know, barely making it. When I was put into prison, I did witness to people. They knew I was a, a believer clearly. Uh, and however I was, what happened is that when, when someone would ask questions, others would gather around to save him from getting the right, you know, the answers from me. Because they didn't want anyone to be influenced by my, uh, by my beliefs. Uh, so increasingly, I became isolated in the cell. And it's, at some point, they moved me to a different prison, a maximum security prison, where they could keep me with fewer prisoners. So then I had one or two prisoners with me only. And that was for my security, uh, because they had accused me of many things by then. When they accused me of being an Islamist, these guys knew that I wasn't because they themselves were. And so they knew I wasn't part of their movement. But when I was accused of being, uh, you know, a PKK Kurdish terrorist, 
uh, supporter of Kurdish terrorism or a military spy or threatening to cut the heads off of Turks or helping to plan a coup, all that kind of thing, then, you know, people began to look at me differently, and so they moved me for my security. Uh, in the second, in the maximum security prison, I was put with, you know, I, I witnessed to this guy, and he'd argue with me, and I'd say, okay, you know, I, I don't want to argue with you. Then a couple days later, he'd say, and you said this, Andrew, just out of the blue. You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, it's been in your mind. It's, you know, God is working in there. Uh, is, this, is this on? Yes. Yeah. So uh, to get back to the question, this, this one man that Andrew was held with for the longest time, he heard a lot. Andrew left his Bible behind. Um, and he was, he was really a good friend to you. I think he was a good man. Um, he said something that really helped me. So I'm hearing this from a Muslim, right? Um, and their view of God is very different from, from mine. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, we've, anyway, he could say this more easily. I was having my doubts and questions and struggles with God. Uh, the Muslims couldn't imagine why, how I could be asking God questions because in their worldview, you're just, that's not possible, right? But see, I, I approach God as a son uh, or, you know, God describes himself as a father and I'm a son. He describes himself as a, as a husband and we are the beloved bride. And so there's a, a different expectation of the relationship. The Muslim doesn't have this expectation. But he told me once, he said, Andrew, stop looking at the news and stop reading the newspapers. Uh, stop worrying about what Trump is saying. Stop worrying about what Erdogan is saying, the president of Turkey. You'll get out when God decides you're going to get out. And until he decides that, you're not going anywhere. So don't, don't even think about all these other things. And I thought, you know, he's right. <laughs> So anyway, I yeah. So I was uh, I was really suddenly no explanation. We didn't know what would happen. Would I be deported? Because that was the original reason that we were arrested was to be deported. So there was a lot of uncertainty in those early days. But um, as I was leaving the prison, it was very hard to leave him behind. He said, be the persistent widow. In other words, keep fighting for me. And of course I was going to. The um, persistent widow, Jesus told a story of a widow, a judge, an unjust judge will not give her justice. But because she continues on and won't relent, then he finally gives justice. So I said, Noreen, be the persistent widow. Don't relent. And I wasn't going to anyway. Um, at some point, and I think this is just probably uh, part of what happens if somebody is in prison and cut off. And he, he started to worry that I would go back to a normal life. And I said, it's not possible. Andrew, if only you could see. You know, my thoughts are constantly for you. Everything I, Everything after that became focused on him primarily. Yes, there were the kids. There was also the ministry that kept going, but he was the, the priority. So to get prayer going, which, again, God took this prayer and just spread it in a way that I never could have. So that was God's hand at work, um, trying to figure out how to encourage him uh, when we could see each other and then pursuing diplomatic, um, any diplomatic venue that I could find particularly with the U.S., but even in other countries. So 
I made a real pest of myself with Department of State, with the Vice President, with anybody I could. I was, you know, doing everything that I could. Question is, where were our children and how did they deal with this? So our, our three kids were in the States and I was really relieved about that. The two older ones were in college and the youngest one was in high school uh, living with Andrew's parents and I was just relieved to have them safely out of the country. Um, as Although obviously it was very hard to not be with them as we're going through this as a, as a family, the five of us are in different places and that was really difficult. I wanted to be a, more of a support to my kids and really be with them, but I also felt that I needed to remain in Turkey to be with Andrew. Um, I was afraid. She was the only person who could visit me, mm -hmm. and so she was my lifeline. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any relationship, any conversation with any other Christian uh, during my, my two years, and so she was the only believer, obviously my wife as well, but she would come in and, and try to encourage me and speak truth to me and uh, a number of times said, Andrew, that is wrong way of thinking. You need to, this is not right. Uh, if I'm questioning whether God is faithful or loves me personally rather than just, you know, loving the group, does he love me, Andrew, individually? Has, has he forgotten me? Noreen having to say, Andrew, God is faithful. God is good. God is true. You know, he loves you. And just repeating some of these truths to me. So she was... Uh, I like to think that God would have found another way to keep me going if she couldn't be in the country, but she was my spiritual lifeline during those two years. I had uh, different places, different rules. And so sometimes yes, sometimes no. As my imprisonment dragged on, I was able to get a Bible eventually. And, uh, but, but in the beginning six months, it was off and on. Yeah. Yeah, so I can tell you what I didn't have that the Muslims did. So I'm, a, I'm alone, isolated, and the Muslims were all encouraging each other. And so all of them were strong Muslims, but I saw new guys come into the cell, and they'd come in, and the others would gather around them and encourage them in Islam. <laughs> so there were some people who had not done their five prayers a day. Well, after they got into prison, they did. And they... It, in Turkey, uh, Turkish is its own language. People don't uh, speak Arabic, but the Quran is in Arabic. Only the very religious learn to read the Quran in Arabic. Everyone in my cell, those who hadn't been able to read it before they came in, they learned how to read it in Arabic in the cell. And so I just saw the encouragement from the group, how it pulled the new people in and 
led them to an increased devotion to Islam. And when one of them was discouraged, the others would come along. You also see how they saved people from me, <laughs> from my influence. They'd say, oh, that guy, he's starting to ask questions. Let's pull him back. And so I saw the, stre the strength of, of the encouragement and fellowship from that Muslims had with each other. How much more for us as Christians when we're, we're brought together by truth and by the Holy Spirit who, you know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm present. So the communion that I saw what I was missing from them and what I have available to me is at a higher level. So it was the encouragement from being with other believers. The idea that I'm part of a body. I have more in common with a Chinese Christian than I do with an American who does not follow Jesus. So I have common culture with the American, but my worldview, my values, what I live for, what's most important for me, I share it with my Chinese brother even if we don't have the same language. And so uh, th that is a closeness that only comes as being part of the body of, of Jesus Christ. So uh, it was the fellowship, the encouragement. You know, I'd, I'd been a worship leader for 20 years, 20 plus years, and was deprived of all, you know, singing, <laughs> music. And when I came out, the day they, re they released me to house arrest, the last two months of my time in Turkey, I came home and Noreen put a worship song on and I just started weeping. I, I missed that worship and being together with other believers. Yeah, we, we really uh, got such an appreciation for the body of Christ and during this time and seeing how God, I mean, we were, this story wasn't about us. We were at the tip of it, but it was really about what God was, he was raising up prayer. Yes, to get Andrew free, but spilling over into Turkey into what he's going to do there. And it's just this beautiful picture of God waking up or just calling to prayer the body around the world in on every continent, there were countries, so many, you know, believers in Senegal, I mean, in all kinds of places, uh, praying. And that was such a beautiful thing that he brought them together to do something that he has, you know, to pour out the prayer for Turkey. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, we felt it because we were in the middle of it. We were caught up in it. And just um, it, it was interesting how from all denominations, there wasn't talk of, oh, I'm this or I'm that. It was really a coming together, uh, including the believers in Turkey. It was a unifying thing, and it was really beautiful, and I think it was really honoring to the Lord. There's, um, it was interesting to see how God has people in very high places, in very interesting places that we really wouldn't have expected it. And then he has others who know people in high places and it was just we just got a just a very broad view of the body and such an appreciation so yeah and we're grateful to all of you here who prayed um what can we say thank you I mean, it was a testing time for sure. Um, I probably didn't go through the same things that he was one behind bars. 
you know. Uh, I had contact with believers. Um, there's no question that it was a hard time. And one thing that, ha- that was a real treasure to me. So let me back up and say, when it comes to persecution, the Bible doesn't give us any promises of an outcome. He doesn't say, there's no verse that says, Andrew, you'll get out of prison. Right. The only, the only promise is that there will be persecution. For all those who seek to live a godly life, there will be, there will be difficulties. There will be persecution. Um, so as humans, we want an outcome. We're looking for that. But one thing that the Lord had over the years coming up to this, that uh, we had been, as, as Andrew said, in 2007, from that time we'd been pursuing God in a more concerted way, going to places where we knew he was working um, and, and the Lord was speaking to us. He was speaking a number of promises and personal things for us. And that was actually a treasure during this time. It was severely tested because it's like, okay, God has said this, but it's looking like this. And that sometimes happens. But that was something for me too. I really tried to line my heart up with what we believed God was saying and to claim those things. For the most part, no. Uh, and this was one of the real struggles I had, is why, when I have sensed your presence in various means, as I'm not talking about just about emotions, but several ways that I have experienced the presence of God, why do I not have it here when this is the hardest time of my life? And I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I have some ideas, and I see what it produced because uh, to summarize, I would say that I can have a sincere, completely sincere and real love for God, but until it's been tested, it isn't proven. Now, we don't have to prove this, but there's a, a difference between soldiers who have trained for years and soldiers who've been in battle. There's something about it that changes them, I'm told. And I was tested severely in my love for, for God. And in the end, I found out that I really did love him. <laughs> and uh, my love before was sincere and, and true and real. But after it was tested, it was a proven love. God knew that already, but I hadn't known and so, in a sense, he showed me my heart that because I persevered and continued in the most difficult circumstances to worship him, to run after him, to, to uh, turn my face toward him, because we always have a choice. We can turn toward him or away from him. And so, 
he knew what the result would be, but I didn't. And I came out of this time of the silence of God with a, with a greater confidence in my relationship with God. Uh, because now I, I've been tested. And I was proven. And I know this now. And I know that he knows. And this makes a difference in our relationship. I think part of the testing I had to go through was the silence of God. Uh, uh, yeah, there was, a, I just want to say one of the verses that, uh, it became my theme verse was Isaiah fifty ten, And it says, uh, for the one who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of his God and lean on him. And so God is saying this to the exiles, and they're in darkness because he put them in the darkness, and he could remove this darkness. He doesn't say, for him who's in darkness, I'm going to remove this. He, said, he, he le lets them stay in darkness, but he says, lean into me. Trust in my name and lean into me. So I was learning to stand in the dark. And this is something that's true for me in prison, but... People have told me, oh, your trials were so much more difficult than mine. Mine are so small. I say, well, yeah, this was a pretty hard one. But the heart of man is the same. And we're, we're all going to be tested in different ways, but in the same areas of the heart. And so your trials will be different from mine, but they will be enough to knock you out. And so knock you out of friendship with God, I would say. And so this is something we all have to learn to do is to, I, I was very offended. I had a lot of questions. Where are you, God? Why aren't you speaking to me? Why haven't you given me a sense of your presence? Where's the strength? Where's the joy? Where's the sense of grace, the palpable sense of grace? And uh, this was hurtful to me. I felt abandoned and betrayed even. And it really shook my relationship with God. And I had all these questions. And then I realized I had all these questions, but God had questions for me. Andrew, are you going to love me even when you feel betrayed? Are you going to remain faithful? And I came to realize that it wasn't God's. I was questioning God's love and his faithfulness. But his faithfulness and love were not being put to the test. They never are. They are constant. My love was being tested. My faithfulness was being tested. So as every believer, as we go into the valley of testing, you know, this is one of the things that led to my turnaround. Let me just mention this. I was really broken in the first, let's say, 9, 10, 11 months. And I, I read something that, that God used to start me thinking in a different way, and it was about how Christians go into the valley of testing, and the valley of testing is full of the skeletons and dead, dry bones of believers who have failed. doesn't mean they don't go to heaven. It means that, that they lost that relationship, the friendship with God, and then their lives are lived without fruit. And I thought, oh, God, this is me. It's almost me. I'm almost at that point. My heart is just suffocated and strangled by all my questions and doubts and offense. And I don't want to end up a skeleton in that valley of testing. And I started to fight. And when I was put into maximum security prison, I made a decision uh, with my will. It wasn't my feelings. It was a decision of the will where I said, whatever you do or don't do, 
I will follow you. And it was almost in defiance. Like, even if you don't talk to me, you're going to see. I'm going to hang on. You'll see. You know, even if you don't set me free, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be faithful. Even if you don't give me a sense of your presence, I'm going to hang on. And it was almost a defiance, which is, is silly, uh, because he was, he was holding me even though I wasn't aware of it. But, and even in my strength, my, my, my strongest strength is still very weak. Even my, the most devotion I can muster up is still weak. But God looks at it and he loves it. And he met me in my desperation. And as I took steps toward him, he just ran to me and, and began to rebuild. So it was a process of I had to make the decisions to turn my face toward him. But he, it was cooperating with his grace. And that's what began the rebuilding process. It's a decision we make. And let me just share something else since I'm at it, since some of you are going to have problems with God and, and, and doubts and offense. I think all of us do in life at some point. Disappointment with God. The one thing that was a key turning point for me, I envisioned a box, just imagined it, a lockbox, and I opened it. And I put my doubts and my questions and my offense. Intentionally, I visualized myself putting them in this box. And then I closed the door. Just turned that handle down. It was a high-tech box. It was, has a digital handprint on it. And I put my hand up there. I said, God, this is locked. This box is locked. You can open it and I can open it. Nobody else can. If you want to open it, You can do that at any time. If you want to deal with all my issues, with all my questions, and deal with my heart, you can do this. But I make the decision that I will not open this box. I will not allow these questions or doubts. I will not entertain them anymore. After that, the same questions and doubts would come back, but I did not let them stay in my mind. I would say no a decision of the will. No, I put you away because I don't need answers to have a relationship with you, God. So this was not, I wasn't feeling good. This was the will, obedience, devotion. And God honored that. And that was part of the rebuilding process. So I encourage you to Imagine your little lockbox and put those things away until God wants to pull them out. To not, yeah, to not demand the answers. We all have things that we don't understand and probably won't until we get to the other side. But to not demand, uh, a friend said, can you not, can you stop demanding the answers? There are still missionaries there. There is an acceleration and deportation of missionaries. This year there have been something like 30 units who have been deported. A number of churches have lost their, their uh, pastors when they're led by missionaries. Uh, and I think this is going to increase. What God showed us is that there would be a, a powerful move and that there, would be, uh, what? that there would be a powerful move, that there would be a harvest, but at the same time that it would come in difficult circumstances. So we've been expecting for years that things would become darker in Turkey. 
And what, what we're seeing now, there is persecution coming. Uh, I said that I, would, I was the first missionary to be put in prison, or I was the first to be in prison in Turkey, but I won't be the last. I don't think any more missionaries will put, be put in prison, probably, but I, they'll just be kicked out of the country. But I think Turkish leaders will be at some point. So I think that what, is, what we're seeing happen now is as Turkey becomes darker and, and more uh, oppression, at the same time, there's an increase in people are starting to ask questions they didn't before. And there are a lot of young people who are now coming into the churches and saying, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. I don't know what I believe, but I, I know that I don't want to be a Muslim. And what's happening is that God often allows the foundations of the things we trust in to be shaken so that he can get our attention. And this is what's happening in Turkey. It happened with the Kurds, with the refugees from Syria, the same thing. Their world is shaken, and they begin to ask questions that they've never even thought of asking before and didn't dare to ask before. So this is happening, and a number of uh, the more people are becoming believers or turning to Jesus in, 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 uh, in Turkey, and the churches are linking this directly to the huge prayer movement that a number of you were involved in. So uh, you already, so those of you who prayed for us, you already have a big investment in Turkey spiritually. And we'd say, you know, keep your eyes on Turkey. See what God does there in the next years. And yeah, do pray for the church there. Do pray for the Turkish leaders. We need uh, the Lord to raise up more of them, to strengthen them, and just to prepare the church. So yeah, thank you for your prayers for Turkey. If you would like to uh, read more God's Hostages, available from Baker Books. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this evening, and please let's thank the Brunsons for their gracious presentation.